Good afternoon. Happy Sunday, everybody. Hope everybody's had a great weekend. Sundays kind of suck because we got to go to Monday, right? Totally sucks. Anyway, welcome to California Haunts Radio. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. In fact, I'm not really hosting in a way. I'm, I'm reading a book today. All right. But I'm, I am also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. Um, we're up and down the state of California. In fact, we have around 45 people on staff. And what that means is that we're almost in every county, which means if you have something going on in your house that's paranormal, or you think you might have something going on in your house or business that you think is paranormal, then uh, we can get to you. You know, if, if, we're, if we're not right in your county, we're two or three counties away, so we can get to you. Anyhow, uh, we've been reading every Sunday the uh, History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden, uh, written by Rebecca F. Pittman. Great book right now. Get you guys a quick update and all this. Uh, Lizzie's on trial, so we're like right smack in the middle of the trial, and hopefully we can get through the trial today, we'll see, but uh, the book not only covers the before the murders, during the murders, during all the trials, it'll cover after the trials, and what happened to Lizzie afterwards, plus my understanding is it will talk about the ghostly activity in the board and bed and breakfast, and that's where we're at with it. I'm giving people about two or three minutes to get in the chat room, okay, because, you know, it's normally we have a five-minute lead in anyway for the show. But uh, it's been an interesting book, interesting ride. If you're watching from Facebook and you like what you hear today or you like the book itself that I'm reading, please hit that follow button. Uh, and if you're watching from YouTube, please hit the subscribe guy, and that's that little uh, ghost down in the bottom right-hand corner with the magnifying glass and the Sherlock Holmes hat that will subscribe you to. More than 350 videos that we have over there, different topics, all right? Today being Sunday marks the start of my week working, as far as the radio show goes. We've got a great, great lineup of shows for you. And uh, to give you an idea, tomorrow's show is going to be at 11 a.m. Pacific. And if, you, if, and if you're able to tune in that time, it'd be great. Otherwise, you can watch it later on in the day, you know, as you get home and stuff. But uh, Bart, Bart Seibel, Seibel is my guest. I hope I said it right. And he believes that we never landed on the moon, that it was all like a Stanley Kubrick movie <laughs> for the moon. So he's going to come on. We're going to talk about that because he's, he claims he's seen video proof, you know, actual video proof that we did not land on the moon, that it was produced in Hollywood. So it should be interesting to talk with him. And he's got, you know, he's also got a book out on the subject. Anyhow, um, what did you do this weekend? Me, I just tried to stay, stay, stay cold. It was too warm in the house, so I was mostly stay cool. I, I did some content creation for TikTok and uh, had friend, had my friend over, so we hung out. You know, watched Netflix. That was about the extent of my weekend. You know, doing that, did some yard work, did some house cleaning, just domestic stuff, just, just usual stuff. Life of radio announcer is not as exciting as, as you think it might be, or ghost hunter, right? Not as exciting as you think it might be. Get this. I hate having things hanging on me. Hang on. Okay. But anyway, we're going to, I'll be reading for about an hour today. Hopefully I'll get to a point in the book where I can stop. If, and you'll know if that hour goes by and I'm still reading, it's because I haven't gotten to a, a spot in the book where there's a big heading or something where I can stop and pick up on next week. This book is available at, at you know, just regular hard copy. You can get it for your laptop, whatever you need it for, your Kindle, and that's over at Amazon. So you can get it, and it's the, like I said, it's the History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden by Rebecca F. Pittman, if you're interested and you want to read it yourself. 
Uh, one more minute and we're off and running. Anyway, um, thank you for coming. I really appreciate you coming, especially on a Sunday. So I suggest, like my usual message says, to grab your popcorn and snacks and put on your fluffies and sit back because we're going into the weekend. I mean, weekend, the end of the weekend into the evening time when you guys are winding down to get ready to go to work tomorrow. So this is the time to do it. And I'm, I'm going to read this book to you. Okay. Maybe you'll doze off. Who knows? Maybe, maybe my voice is soothing. I don't know. So, <laughs> I know my dog goes to sleep when I talk to him. So maybe my voice is soothing, right? But I want to thank everybody that's been watching that, that's been watching the show. Uh, I really appreciate each and every one of you. And, like, and if you could, you know, bring in five people that you know to take a look at the show, it'd be appreciated. Because the more we have, you know, watching the show, the merrier, as they say. So, uh, you know, one of those things. And during the show, if you have any questions of me, go ahead and ask. I won't be looking up at the chat room very often because I'll be reading. But I will get the messages. All right. All right. Let me get this uh, tablet open here, my Kindle, so we can get on with our day of reading. And again, tomorrow's show will be at 11 o'clock in the morning. So you can, Pacific, so you can tune in. And for you guys on the East Coast, yeah, the math. Um, <laughs> three hours ahead, right? Yeah. So let me get this up so I can read. Uh, kind of tired. I just have a tendency to stay up at night because I like to work on it. On radio stuff, whether it's the radio website or I'm looking for guests or, or creating con, you know, creating content from from the show. So I tend to stay up late. And last night was, was no different. And then when I did try to go to bed, I couldn't do it. So I didn't get to bed till 6 a.m. this morning and woke up around 11. So I'm kind of draggy. Okay. It's here somewhere. There it is. This thing has no more space on it. I try to load one more book on here. It's gonna be the end of my tablet here. I'm looking. I'm looking for a new. I'm looking for a lot of new things. Tablet's one of them. Okay, so we're in the middle of uh, just to set this up. We're in the middle of Lizzie's main trial. Okay, and, and uh, the ju judge had determined, even though there was circumstantial evidence, the evidence wasn't that great, that Lizzie should go to trial. So we're right in the middle of the trial. So uh, there. Are questioning people okay so the next place we are at it starts mrs hannah reagan was one of two jail matrons at the fall river police station lizzie had put lizzie had been put in her in her care and had been given the use of matron reagan's sitting room during the inquest and preliminary hearing she was questioned about the alleged quarrel she heard between emma and lizzie on the morning of august 24th the day the preliminary hearing was to start mrs reagan testified to the following conversation in quotes, Miss Emma Borden came to my room about 20 minutes to 9 on the 24th of August, and I spoke to let her in, and she spoke to her sister Lizzie. I left the two women talking together, and I went into a toilet room about four feet from where Lizzie Borden was lying on a couch, and I heard very loud talk, and I came to my door, and it was Miss Lizzie Borden. She was lying on her left side, and her sister Emma was talking to her, and Lizzie says, Emma, you have given me away, haven't you? She says, no, Lizzie, I have not. You have, Lizzie says, and I will let you see. I won't give in one inch. And Lizzie sat, Lizzie sat right up and put up her finger, and I stood in the doorway, looking at both of them. Lizzie spoke in a loud voice. She laid down on the couch, 
faced out the window and closed her eyes. Emma got a chair and sat down beside her sister and stayed until sometime after 11 o'clock in the morning. Miss Lizzie did not speak to her again or tell her goodbye when she left. They both saw me. Mrs. Jennings, who came to where Lizzie was shortly after Emma left that morning, tried to get Matron Reagan to play down the hurt feelings between the two sisters to which she had testified by getting her to admit that it all played a crushing that they had all played a crushing and egg trick in the same afternoon, and everyone laughed and was having a good time. Mrs. Reagan admitted that, that the mood was better, but that Emma had not joined in. She repeated Lizzie's statement upon not being upon not being able to break the egg that it was the only thing I've ever attempted to do that I could not. Mr. Jennings tried again. He reminded Mrs. Reagan that he himself had offered her a paper to sign regarding the retraction of her story about the quarrel that she had recklessly told to reporter Edmund Porter. While admitting, Mr. While admitting Mr. Jennings drew up a paper, she denied signing it or agreeing with it. He pushed her to admit the only reason she did not sign the document was that Marshall Hilliard had forbidden her to do so. She denied that she was the reason. She stuck by her story of the quarrel under oath. The final witness of the day, witnesses of the day were called upon to speak of poison and Lizzie's interest in it. First up was Eli Bence, the young clerk from D.R. Smith's drugstore in Fall River. The prosecution was ready to show that Lizzie Borden, on Wednesday, August 3rd, one day before the murders, tried not once but twice to buy prussic acid, the deadliest poison of all, from two drugstores within an easy walking distance of her home. Mr. Bence only managed to get his name and occupation out before Mr. Robinson was on his feet, asking the judge to have the jury excluded for void dire. I'm sorry, I can't. I don't, <laughs> void dire is a legal term meaning to see what is to see what is to be said. The jury left the room, and the prosecution went over to his poison went over his poison case, asking Mr. Bentz to retell the story of Lizzie's trip to his store on August third. He did so. Robinson argued its its admissibility as the Bordens were not killed by poison. Moody claimed it went to show premeditation and determination to kill. Robinson said it was too remote in time even though it was only a day before. Charles A. Lawton, Nathaniel Hathaway, and Henry H. Tillerson were called on June 15th for day 10 of the trial. Lawton was a pharmacist, Hathaway an analytic chemist, and Tillerson a furrier, dealing in women's furs. They offered details concerning prussic acid and that it had never been used to clean fur capes. In the end, Judge Mason threw it out. The jury would not hear the story of Lizzie's attempt to buy poison. Once again, Lizzie whipped with joy. The Boston Globe, June 15, 1893, New Bedford. At the conclusion, she burst into tears, into a convulsion of pleasure, gratitude, and sudden relief that racked her body. She had learned to brace herself against adversity and unkindness, but mercy and active friendliness were so new to her that she broke down then. At this time, District Attorney Knowlton rose and said, The Commonwealth rests his case in chief. The prosecution had done all it could to prove its case against Lizzie Andrew Borden. While they could ask questions of the defense's witnesses in cross-examination and hope to score some points or raise some doubts, their cannon shots had been fired. The closing summation would carry home their points. They only hoped it would be enough. A rumor was going around that the defense might not even present a case, saying the prosecution had failed to prove theirs. The jurors waited hopefully, dreams of resuming a normal life in their minds. They had seen things of which nightmares were made. 
With temperatures in the 90s, the courtroom was anxious to be unpacked from its sardine-like state and go home. They were to be disappointed. While only two days in duration, Lizzie's lawyers did, indeed, present their street of witnesses. In what can only be called a lame attempt at some redemption against the points made against her, Mr. Jennings rallied his co-counsel and began. Chapter 35, Superior Court Trial, The Defense On day 15 of the trial, while the temperature outside sizzled, the barometer inside the courtroom had changed. With the defense about to take its turn, there was a noticeable difference in Lizzie Borden's behavior. She giggled behind her handkerchief, spoke with her attorneys, and sat upright, sat upright, no longer no longer wilting or keeping her eyes downward. The rest of the room sensed the change, and there was a general feeling of lightness, despite perspiration-stained clothing and restrictive corsets. The description of the attendees during the final days of the trial had also swung in a different direction. The country bumpkin crowd had given way to the upper crust of New England, ladies in chiffon and silk, their hats looking like the latest the latest in fashion, filled the seats. Instead of cheap paper fans, as the ones that had, crack that had crackled during most of the trial, theirs were ivory and bamboo, some edged in lace and decorated with exotic scenes. Perhaps Lizzie looked around and felt the rush of joy. Was this indicative of the elite finally accepting her? Were they here to champion her? The, the stenograph system of the courtroom ran like a well-oiled machine. The on-duty stenographer, one of several men, sat at a desk in front of the witness and worked a five-minute shift. As soon as his time limit approached, another typist would nudge him out of his chair and take his place, never missing a word of testimony. The replaced stenographer then sped from the room down the stairs into a living and into a room where a bevy of secretaries took his pad of notes and typed them into a polished document. A third man was already running back up to back up the stairs with the previous set all bound and stitched, to hand over to both attorneys and the three judges. The system was so efficient. The legal terms, the legal teams had the previous witnesses' statements in their hands within an hour of their appearance on the stand. Today, some of these documents are on display, and copies may be purchased at the Fall River Historical Society. You can see the attorneys' hand-scribbled notes in the margins as they went over prior testimonies. Uh, excuse me. <coughs> as they went over prior testimony for the rebuttals. Andrew Jennings opened for the defense. A small, slender man, Jennings gave off a nervous energy. He was described as resolute with a face full of anxiety. He had let Mr. Adams hammer home most of the cross-examination during the prosecution's case, but he was now on his feet and ready to dismantle Knowlton's case against his client. Sadly, it was not much of a case, and it had been all heard before, with the exception of Emma Borden's testimony, which would come last. Mr. Jennings' opening statement opening argument. Mr. Andrew Jennings opened his argument for the defendant by giving his personal relationship to Andrew Borden as his client and friend. He stated the brutality of the crime, the audacity by the time and place, and played upon the juror's conscience that the daughter of a man could not possibly do this heinous crime. It had to be the work of an insane person or fiend. His points that would be presented to the jury as proof of innocence were, one, Lizzie's spotless reputation in the community, a member of the church, she was interested in church matters and was connected with various organizations for charitable works. Two, there was not one particle of direct evidence in the case from beginning to end against Lizzie Borden. There was not one spot of blood. There was not one weapon that, that, can, that they have connected with her in any way, shape, or fashion. Their case is wholly circumstantial. Three, there was no motive for the commission of this crime. Even if the prosecution furnishes you with a motive on her part to kill the stepmother, 
They have shown you absolutely none to kill the father. Four, the clawhead hatchet, which the prosecution first put forth as the murder weapon, was eliminated after Professor Wood proved there was no blood upon it, nor could it have been washed in such a way as to remove all traces. Parentheses. Quotes, I'm sorry, quotes. They have got to produce the weapon and having, it, and having produced it, connect it in some way directly with the prisoner, or else they have got to account in some reasonable way for his disappearance. End quotes. Five. As to exclusive opportunity, the prosecution has provided witnesses from all around the house testifying they did not see anyone at the time of the murder. Mr. Jennings points out that none of them saw Mr. Borden walking up 2nd Street that day. Parentheses, in fact, in point of fact, several did see him coming along Spring Street, and Mrs. Kelly saw him as he came around the house. And, in parentheses, six, Lizzie burned the dress due to its being badly stained with paint. In fact, Mr. Jennings points out it doesn't matter because the bed for court is not the dress she had on that morning. It is the blue dress she handed over to the police when they asked for it. Thus was the case Mr. Jennings put forth, stating he would back up with his witnesses. He jumped in with the intruder theory, the witness for the defense. Martha and Marianne Shenlong, mother and stepdaughter, who were neighbors to the Bordens to the northeast, testified <clears throat> to hearing a loud banging noise against the fence separating their property from, from the Bordens at 11 o'clock the night before the murders. It was pointed out, although they claimed the noise lasted five minutes, their large dog parked outside near the fence never barked. It was also pointed out that the Fall River Ice Company, only one lot over from them, made the same type of noise as the ice was loaded down on their shoes. Next came the Kirby's, neighbors to the north of the Shanglins, who found a stranger, senseless and unresponsive, laid out on their steps leading to the Third Street sidewalk. Mr. Kirby yelled at him and shook him with no success. The testimony was quickly dispatched. Delia Manley and Sarah Hart were called to testify to seeing the strange pale young man loitering inside the border's gate, gate post at 9.45 to 9.50 a.m. the morning of the murders as they looked at palm lilies in the back of a peddler's cart parked in front of the border's, the border's home. The description of their testimony has been presented earlier in the book. Dr. Handy came on board to report his sightings of a similar extremely pale young man walking sporadically across from the Borden house around 10.20 that morning. While earlier reports said the man was thought to be Mike, the soldier, the town drunk, they were later disproven, and the mysterious man, Mrs. Manley, Mrs. Manley Hart and Dr. Handy, reported, was never found. Parentheses, it is the author's belief that man was Joseph Chatterton, nephew to John Morris, who was there to pick up Abby Borden for her meeting at the bank, Transferring, a, transferring Swansea Farm deed into her name, in parentheses. Attorney Knowlton, giving Mr. Moody a well-deserved reprieve, showed a new spirit as he went after the defense's witnesses. Perhaps Pillsbury had been writing to him from his lounge chair on a beach in Florida where the Attorney General was convalescing, lighting a fire beneath the reluctant DA. Or maybe Knowlton, seeing a light at the end of the tunnel and knowing his re-election was nigh, decided to put on a memorable grand finale. He reiterated that the Shanglin woman's window was closed the night they heard the banging on the fence. Their Newfoundland dog, resting on the patio, never barked, and the noise from the ice house was formidable. As for the three witnesses who saw the man loitering outside the Bordens on the morning of the murders, he pointed out that Mrs. Manley barely noticed him, not even enough to describe his face, whether he had a mustache or how old he was. She finally managed to say he was probably 30, that he was pale and wearing a light clothing, were her, most, were, her, were her most salient points. 
poor Dr. Handy, who hammered and ridiculed, who, I'm sorry about that, poor Dr. Handy was hammered and ridiculed as he tried, without success, to describe how the man he saw was oscillating back and forth as he walked. Knowlton ran him through the ringer. Finally, Handy said, he was moving very slowly, and I imagined that he was. Knowlton cut him off. I beg your pardon? I didn't ask you what you imagined. Knowlton was on a roll. Mark Chase was another witness to testify to a mysterious stranger hanging about at the time of the murder. He said he saw a strange buggy park in front of the Borden's house that morning. Knowlton took him apart, but finally, eliciting what the buggy Chase saw was farther up the road and not, in fact, in front of the Borden property. On a street compromised of more businesses and homes, a strange buggy was not a smoking gun. Finally, Charles N. Gifford said he saw a man with a straw hat pulled down over his eyes, weighing 180 to 190 pounds, sitting on the side steps of the Bournes the night before the murders. Charles Sawyer took the stand and told of his lengthy stay, holding the fort at the rear screen door the morning of the murders. He spoke of seeing Lizzie in the rocking chair with Mrs. Churchill and Miss Russell, administering to her. He saw no bloodstains on her dress. This was the man who had been in a unique position that morning to see and hear more than most. Yet, his testimony is common and unembellished. One gets the impression he became increasingly nervous as the day wore on, as reports came to him that two people had been brutally murdered and were within steps of him. His bolting of the kitchen cellar door and stepping outside the house to stand on the back porch steps were clues to his state of mind. He stated he had handled the clawhead hatchet and even rubbed off a tiny swath of rust when he found himself alone in the kitchen, as the partial autopsies went on in the nearby sitting room and dining room. Jerome Borden was called. He was a relative of the Bordens, and had arrived at the house the day after the murders at about 2 o'clock. Mr. Borden's testimony was to show the front door of the Borden house could be opened without a key, due to a faulty spring lock. If the door wasn't slammed hard, one could simply push it open if the lock hadn't caught. John Morris and Mrs. Brigham also testified that the lock had issues. The next string of witnesses was brought in to discredit one of the more damaging aspects of, of Lizzie's guilt. Medley's finding no footprints in the barn loft dust that morning. They were as follows. Walter P. Stevens, a reporter for the Fall River Daily News, claimed he had heard three people up in the loft while he was looking around the barn's first floor before, before Officer Medley came into the barn. Mr. Knowlton dove in by asking what time Stevens arrived on the scene. I don't know. What time did you see Mr. Medley? I don't know. Did you see him into the premises? No. Knowlton. So, so that all of Mr. Medley's movements you know is that at one time, while you were there, you saw him going into the kitchen? Yes. Knowlton. Where he had been before? You don't know? You don't know? Stevens. No. Stevens admitted the barn door was wide open when he went in. Officer Midley had found it locked, and then Knowlton offered his knockout punch. Do you certainly recall any of your movements or the order of them? Stevens, yes, sir. I remember the first part. I don't remember just when I tried the door, whether it was before or after I entered the house. Next. Albert Clarkson is a steam engineer who claimed he was one of the three men up in the loft that morning before Officer Midley arrived on the scene. Mr. Knowlton discredited the witness by showing a discrepancy in the time he said he arrived at the Borden house. He had just announced he arrived there at 11.30 the morning of the murders and spoke with Charles Sawyer at the back door for about five to eight minutes before going into the barn. Knowlton reads back Clarkson's testimony from the preliminary hearing where he said he arrived that morning at 11.40.
the witness says he would he wouldn't swear he was not he had not said that only two weeks after the murders at the preliminary hearing. That would mean he went into the bar a good five minutes or more after Officer Milley stated he was there. When he added the time Clarkson spoke to Sawyer, moving right along, Everett Brown and Thomas Thomas E. Barlow tagged Brownie and me by the local papers where the two boys mentioned earlier during the preliminary hearing. They testified they were messing around that day, pushing down along the second street sidewalk, bumping into each other often bumping each other off into the gutter. They saw Officer Doverty race across the street to make his call at the undertakers to Marshall Hilliard and made their way to the boarding yard. They looked around for clues after being told the murder had taken place, eventually finding their way into a into the barn. By the time Knowlton finished with them, it was obvious they had been coached as to their testimony. Thomas Barlow was especially telling. Quotes, went into the barn and went right up to the hayloft. I went over to the front window on the west side and looked out the window. Then we went and looked in under the hay, and after that, we came downstairs and went out. End quote. Knowlton, how was the heat up there, up in the barn compared with it out in the sun? Barlow, it was cooler up in the barn than outdoors. Smiles went around the courtroom. Every single witness that said the temperature and environment in the loft that day was stifling, oppressive, extremely hot, and close. Mr. Knowlton's work was done. The case against Officer Milley's claim to being the first in, in the barn had just melted beneath the August sun. Hyman Lubinsky, Charles E. Gardner, and Charles V. Newhall were next called by the defense to show evidence that Hyman Lubinsky saw Lizzie coming from the barn area at 11.05 to 11.10, the morning of the murders, just as she had claimed. First up, the Russian ice cream peddler, Hyman Lubinsky. He claimed he picked up his team from Charles Gardner's stable at the corner of 2nd Street in Rodman, only a few blocks from the Borden house on the morning of August 4th. A few minutes after 11 o'clock, he stated, he also stated that as he drove past the Borden house, he saw a lady come out the way from the barn right to the stairs, right to the stairs back of the house, the north side stairs from the back of the house. She had on a dark colored dress. She had nothing on her head. She was walking very slow. He stated he knew who the servant was and as he had delivered ice cream to her two or three weeks to her two or three weeks before the murders. Lubinsky then dropped the statement that should have been pounced on, but wasn't. Quotes I saw the servant and the woman and the woman too. End quotes. As he drove by that morning, Mr. Jennings asked. Was the woman you saw the day of the murder the same woman as the servant? No, sir. Mr. Knowlton, after a lengthy question and answer about where Lubinsky had gone after he saw the woman, and when he broke for dinner, etc., finally asked, Who did you tell that to? I told Mr. Wilkinson, and then I told Mr. Mullally, the policeman, two days after the murder, in Mr. Wilkinson's boot store. Mr. Wilkinson is my boss. I also told the reporter. Mr. Knowlton gets the foreigner to admit that he spoke of Mr. Phillips, on the defense team just before the trial in Mr. Jennings' office. He also had Mr. Lubinsky state that the time he usually picked up his team from Gardner's was as was at 10.30 and not 11. Lubinsky said he was running late that day, as the horses had not finished eating when he got there. It was all for naught. Officer Mullally was later recalled to show in his police report Hyman Lubinsky had told him two days after the murders that he had passed the wardens around 10.30 that morning, not 11 and saw a woman, fitting Lizzie's description, coming from the barn area. Lubinsky also told the reporter who ran the story, stating that time was 10.30 a.m. Once again, the witness had been coached, 
and asked to move his timeline up half an hour to foster Lizzie's alibi for her father's murder. Charles Gardner. Charles Gardner owned the stables. Lubinsky went to that owned the stables that Lubinsky, that Lubinsky went to that morning to pick up his team. He backed the Russian story 100%. Knowlton was unable to shake him. By then, the obvious lie told by Lubinsky as to what time he was actually passing the Borgers' house was still ringing in the jurors' ears. It is hard to say how much credence they gave this witness, or Charles V. Newhall, a salary hardware maker, whose short testimony only served to say he was in Mr. Gardner's company. From 11 until 11.50, I saw a reporter heading up 2nd Street shortly after he heard Mr. Borden had been stabbed. His testimony did little to add or detract from the case. Joseph LeMay was called next. After stating his name and that he lived on a farm at 56 acres at Stony Brook, Fall River, his testimony was interrupted by Mr. Knowlton, claiming the witness was about to introduce new evidence, something the court had to rule on. The counselors approached the bench and conferred with the judges in private, with Mr. Jennings offering the following proof. This witness will testify that on the 16th of August, at his farm about four miles north of City Hall, while traveling into the woods for the purpose of cutting poles, just before he reached a turn in the road, he heard the words, poor Mrs. Borden, repeated three times, and immediately saw sitting upon a rock behind a wall and some brushwood a man. Mr. Jennings continued by saying the man picked up a shingling hatchet and shook it at Mr. LeMay. He had spots of blood upon his shirt. He turned away as Mr. LeMay brandished his own axe and leaped over a wall and disappeared in the woods. By direction of the court, the witness left the stand and the jury was excused until the next day at 9 o'clock. Knowlton and Jennings then argued their reasons for allowing the witness to go on with his testimony. Knowlton claimed it was hearsay evidence without validation. Jennings argued that a man found with a hatchet, blood on his clothing, and mentioning Mrs. Borden was fair game. The judges said they would take it into their consideration and adjourned the court until the following morning, Friday, June 16th. Mr. Joseph LeMay does not make a repeat appearance, so it is assumed that the testimony was ruled inadmissible. Friday, June 16th. Friday morning brought with it welcome respite from the heat. Overnight, the temperatures had dropped 37 degrees from 92 on Thursday evening to 55 on Friday morning. The end of the trial was in sight, and that, along with the cool weather, brought an air of impending release from the long graphic trial. Newspapers weighed in with their opinions. Psychics and headline wannabes wrote copious letters to the prosecution, police and reporters, all stating they knew the answer to the murder mystery. Women's suffrage movements and Christian organizations denounced Knowlton for the witch hunt, not the first to give a nod to neighboring Salem. The amount of ink dedicated to this world-famous trial would rival that of Jack the Ripper's notoriety. Everyone took their places, and the day's events began, with most of the day's testimony spent on debunking Matron Reagan's story of Lizzie and Emma's argument, of argument August 24, 1892, within her private rooms at the Fall River Police Station. Thomas F. Hickey, a reporter for the Fall River Globe, was called and asked about his conversation with Matron Reagan regarding the truth of her story in the Boston Globe concerning a quarrel she overheard between the sisters when Lizzie allegedly said, Emma, you have given me away. He stated when he spoke to Mrs. Reagan, a woman he knew, the morning following the publishing of the story, he said, I see you are getting yourself into the paper. And that she laughed at the, and that she laughed and said, Yes, but they have got to take it all back. He went on to say Mrs. Reagan told him that there was no truth at all of the story printed about the alleged quarrel. 
Mr. Dalton, on cross, took the tactic that the newspapers of the day were highly competitive, each trying to get the scoop. Hickey agreed that was so. Knowlton tried to get him to admit that he was out to discredit the Boston Globe's scoop on a highly explosive story. Mr. Hickey finally admitted, I was sent to get Mrs. Reagan's story. Knowlton, that was what you were after, to have something to offset the Globe scoop, wasn't it? Yes, sir. Knowlton, if you could get it? Yes, sir. Knowlton triumphantly. Exactly. James E. Winwood was then called. He was the undertaker who had charge of the Borden's funeral. Mr. Jennings asked him if all he was preparing the bodies for burial, whether or not he had seen any ring on Mr. Borden's finger. Mr. Woodward said, I can't remember so long ago he was excused. Mrs. Mariana Holmes was sworn. After giving the oath, Mr. Jennings drove, dove in, into her relationship with Lizzie, having her state that Lizzie had been friends with Mrs. Holmes' daughter since childhood. Jennings then had her state all the charity work Lizzie was involved with including teaching Chinese children in Sunday school and helping at the hospital. She stated she had seen Lizzie and Abby sit together at church within a year prior to the murders. Mrs. Holmes said she arrived at the Borden's house at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, the day of the murders. She went over the day's events without offering any new information. She left the house at half past 8 that evening. She testified that she was at the house part of the time every day until Lizzie's arrest. Lizzie's blue dress that she had turned over to Marshall Hilliard was brought in and shown to Mrs. Holmes. Mr. Jennings asked, Did you at any time see this dress there? Mrs. Holmes stated, Miss Lizzie had that dress on Friday morning, and I think also on Saturday morning for a short time. She wore a black net over silk dress to the funeral Saturday morning. Parentheses, note here that Mrs. Holmes says the dress turned in is the dress Lizzie wore for three days. She also says Lizzie had it on for a short time Saturday morning before changing into the black dress. Oddly, Mr. Knowlton did not challenge her on her testimony considering the, the dress Lizzie wore and the one she turned in. Others described it as light blue. The dress on display is navy blue, a darker blue dress. Hyman Lubinsky testified the woman he saw coming around the house that morning was wearing a dark dress. Had Lubinsky and Mrs. Holmes been nudged as to their memory of the dress the defendant wore? End of parentheses. Mrs. Holmes was then questioned. Mrs. Holmes was then questioned exhaustively to her presence during the time Mrs. Reagan had been given a paper by Reverend Buck and asked to sign it, stating that she had never told a reporter about a quarrel between Lizzie and Emma Borden. Mrs. Holmes stated she was in the room when it happened and also saw Mrs. Reagan go out into the hallway to talk to reporters. She said Mrs. Reagan talked more to Mrs. Brigham after the incident than to herself. Mr. Jennings ended his, his examination of Mrs. Holmes by making sure he got on the record that Lizzie had come down to the sitting room the morning of the funeral and kissed her father as he lay in his casket. Mr. Charles Holmes. Mariana's husband was called. His entire testimony was his recollection of the events following Mrs. Reagan's refusal to sign the paper written up for her by Mr. Jennings, denouncing her story to the paper about an argument between Lizzie and Emma, while Lizzie declared, You have given me away, Emma. He stated Mrs. Reagan said she would sign it if Marshall Hilliard said it was all right. Marshall Hilliard had yelled at her, at Mr. Jennings, and told her to go back to her room and for she and Reverend Buck to mind her own business. Hilliard also told her to state what she knew on the stand under oath, which she did. Mr. Holmes said she did not sign the paper proffered by her, a proffered to her by Mr. Jennings, John Caldwell. A reporter who was there that day and witnessed the hoopla in the marshal's office testified he heard Hilliard tell Mrs. Reagan 
If you sign that paper, it will be against my express orders. Then he turned and saw me and ordered me out of the office. I went, and after explaining, I did not know it was a private office. Mrs. Mary Brigham, Lizzie's close friend, testified that Mrs. Reagan came into the matron's room after returning from Marshall Hilliard's tirade. Mary said she acted mad. She sat down in a rocking chair as near me as she could sit. She said to me, It is all a lie from the beginning to end. I was willing to sign that paper, but the marshal wouldn't let me do it. He told me to go to my room and obey orders. I would rather leave a place than stay here, where I have been so lied about. That was all Mrs. Brigham had to offer. Miss Emma speaks. Joseph Howard, our favorite journalist, weighed in on the sensation Emma Borden, on the sensation of Emma Borden's upcoming testimony caused about New Bedford. It's being noised about the town that Emma Borden was on the stand. Everybody made a rush for the courthouse, but they might as well have rushed to the spire of the nearest church for the good people already favored with seats knew a good thing when they had it, and not a soul stirred during the entire recess. Save such as do, they, they would have no difficulty in getting back. Next to the interest felt in Lizzie Borden, with a possible exception in favor of well-meaning Bridget Sullivan, the popular desire has been greatest to see Miss Emma Borden, daughter of the murdered man and sister of the accused. Quotes, she is over 40 years of age and, the, and looks it. A prim little old-fashioned New England maiden, dressed with an exceedingly neat, neatness in plain black, with the impress of a Borden in every feature. Self-reliance and personal dignity, I should say, are conspicuous factors in her composition. There was no swaying of her slender form, no drooping of her straight eye, no quivering of her tight mouth. Everybody looked at her, but she looked at the council only. The Emma Borden who entered the New Bedford courtroom on that Friday afternoon was not the woman the public had grown accustomed to seeing. This was a stronger woman, with the Borden traits of iron. <coughs> excuse me, my <coughs> throat. This was a stronger woman with the Borden traits of iron will showing in the firm set of her mouth and the direct eye contact with which she met each inquisitor. She stood, she stood straight, confident, and self-possessed for two hours. Only during a recess did she accept the chair for a moment. It was clear. Emma Borden was here to be heard, and to make it known that she would not be intimidated. While the newspapers were unrelentingly cruel in their description of her, Emma Borden could not be faulted for a quiet demeanor and strength. This was a woman who had walked into a home splattered with the blood of her father and stepmother, asked to take over the funeral arrangements, to take care of her younger sister, who by then had hidden away in her bedroom, while a physician from across the street had fed her a daily supply of sedatives. She had wiped up the blood, dealt with the police, and spent every spare moment at, his, at, his sister's, at her sister's side, in jails and in courtrooms. Yet the papers could only point out that she had a large forehead, weak chin, and looked much older than her 42 years. Mr. Jennings started the questioning of Lizzie Selber's sister by asking Emma Borden the state of Lizzie's assets. He wanted, the, he wanted the motive for the murder out of the way. Lizzie had plenty of her own money. She had no need to kill for it. Emma produced records showing Lizzie had $170 on deposit at the BMC Durfee Bank, 2000, 2000 in, in the Masoit Bank, 500 in the Union Savings, and 141 in the Fall River Fison Savings. This, in addition to various shares of stock. In 1892, this was a substantial amount. Mr. Jennings went for the sentimental side of the testimony. He led Emma through a short discourse, underscoring Andrew's wearing of the gold ring Lizzie had given him. Quote, 10 to 15 years before, 
unquote, before the murder. Emma testified it was the only article of jewelry he ever wore, and that he had been buried with it upon his little finger. Emma stated that the sisters owned between 18 or 19 dresses in various closets. All of those within the closets, all within the clothes press closet, with the exception of one of Abby's dresses hanging there, belonged to Lizzie and Emma. When asked how many of the dresses were blue, Emma answered, ten, two of them to me and eight to my sister. Parentheses, this may have had a more sinister meaning than Emma realized. Eight blue dresses gave Lizzie a selection that could mirror the dress she claimed she wore that day. Would people notice the difference between one blue dress with a darker figure or another? End parentheses. Mr. Jennings asked her about the search done Saturday afternoon after the funeral. Emma stated that Dr. Dolan told her the search had been as thorough as the search could be unless the paper was torn from the wall and the carpets taken from the floor. She went on to say that she and Lizzie gave the officers full permission to search everywhere and even assisted when a truck with a tricky lock wouldn't open. Emma was asked about the blue bedford dress Lizzie was in, in the habit of wearing around the house in the mornings. She described it as a blue cotton bedford cord dress, very light blue ground with a dark figure measuring about an inch by three quarters of an inch. It was made of cheap material costing only 12 and a half cents a yard. She stated the dress had gotten paint on it shortly after its creation by the dressmaker who had worked on it at the Borden house, sewing, in, sewing it in the guest room as was the custom. Mr. Jennings' next question, while appearing innocuous, was about to detonate a bomb as loud as the one dropped when Officer Mowley said he saw the handle to the hatchet head on the day of the murders. Jennings, now, where was that dress, if you know, on Saturday, the day of the search? Emma, I saw it hanging in the clothes press over the front entry. If one could see the look on Nolta's face when Emma Borden stated she saw the stained Bedford cord hanging in a closet the officers had just turned inside out, it would be worth its weight in gold. The courtroom sat in stunned silence as Mr. Jennings hurried on. Jennings, how, co how come you how, how come you to see it at that time? Emma, I went in to hang up the dress that I had been wearing during the day. I'm sorry about that. I went in to hang up the dress that I had been wearing during the day, and there was no vacant nail. And I searched around to find a nail, and I noticed this dress. As the prosecution table reeled, the best was yet to come. Jennings, did you say anything to your sister about that dress in consequence of your not finding a nail to hang your dress on? Emma, I did. I said, you have not destroyed that old dress yet? Why don't you? Jennings, what was the condition of the dress at the time? Emma, it was very dirty, very much soiled and faded, badly faded. Jennings, when did you next see the Bedford Court dress? Emma, Sunday morning, I think, about nine o'clock. I was washing dishes, and I heard my sister's voice, and I turned around and saw she was standing at the foot of the stove, between the foot of the stove and the dining room door. This dress was hanging on her arm, and she says, I think I shall burn this old dress up. I said, why don't you? Or, you had better. Or, I would if I were you. Or something like that. I can't tell you the exact words, but I meant do it. And I turned back and continued washing the dishes, and did not see her burn it, and did not pay any more attention to her at the time. The kitchen door and windows roll wide open, screens in and blinds open. Officers roll around the yard. Mr. Jennings tried to establish that it was a custom in the boarding house to burn old dresses rather than keep them as rags as most houses did, but Mr. Knowlton objected, and the question was ruled out. Emma then testified about Alice Russell, coming to her and Lizzie as they sat in the dining room on Monday morning, the day after the dress burning, to tell the sisters Detective Hanscom had just asked her about Lizzie's dresses. Alice was in a state 
saying she had just lied to the detective, telling him all the dresses were still in the house that were there the day of the murder. Quote, the worst thing you could have done was burn that dress, Alice told Lizzie. Oh, why did you let, okay, oh, why did you let me do it? Emma said was her sister's reply. She claimed she and Lizzie sent Miss Russell back in, back into the parlor where Mr. Hanscom was seated to tell him the truth that the dress had been burned due to old paint stains. Emma took it one step farther. She stated she had not seen Lizzie wear the Bedford cord for several weeks before it, before it went away, or before I went away. Bridget had testified that Lizzie wore it Wednesday, the day before the murders, and was in the habit of wearing it almost every morning. Parentheses, food for thought. Emma said she noticed the stained Bedford cord as she looked for an empty nail to hang her dress. Why were all the nails taken? Had Lizzie purchased a new dress while Emma was gone or had one made? Or had one made? One that looked almost identical to another one, perhaps longer than her others, so she could so she could hand the police a similar dress? Mrs. Churchill and Miss Russell stated that they had never seen the dress Lizzie was wearing the day of the murders. Another obstacle to Emma's testimony is, is the earlier testimony by the police that all the dresses were taken away Saturday afternoon. Had they been returned by Saturday night? End of parentheses. Two dangerous bombs had been defused, as far as Jennings was concerned. Lizzie had no financial motive to kill her parents, and the burning of the dress was not a suspicious thing to do in the Borden household, and had, in fact, been instigated by Emma, not Lizzie. The others had even, the sisters had even stated, stated insisted that, uh, excuse me, I'm so sorry, the sisters had even insisted that Alice admit to her lie concerning it. Bomb 3 was still smoking when Jennings went for his final series of questions. Jennings, now Miss Emma, do you recall a story that was told by Mrs. Reagan about a quarrel, a quarrel between yourself and your sister? Emma, yes sir. Jennings, on that morning, did you have any conversation with Miss Lizzie and when she said, Emma, you have given me away, haven't you? Emma, I did not. Jennings, and did you say, no Lizzie, I haven't? You have. She says, Okay, this word is confusing, I'm sorry. Jennings, and did you say, no, Lizzie, I haven't, you have. She says, and I will let you see, I won't give in one inch. Was there any such talk as that? Emma, there was not. Jennings, anything like that, that morning or any morning? Emma, no time, not any time. Jennings, was there ever any trouble in the matron's room between you and your sister while she was there? Emma, there was not. An uncomfortable tension swept through the room as Attorney Knowlton stood for the cross-examination. He looked across at this little woman with the receding chin and large brown eyes. He had underestimated her. She returned his gaze with the steely intensity for which the Bordens were known. The game was on and the gloves were off. Mr. Knowlton began by asking Emma how long she had been in Fairhaven and when she had returned to the Borden house. She stated she had been away two weeks and returned, and returned the afternoon of the murders at 5 o'clock. She admitted Lizzie had come to see her in Fairhaven on Saturday while Lizzie was staying a few days in New Bedford. She stated she now lived alone in the Borden house, with the exception of two servants. She was asked to list the, list the Morse relatives living nearby, which she did. Mr. Knowlton now waited in the murky water. He asked Emma about the transfer of the 4th Street house into Abby's name and the friction it had caused between the sisters and their parents. Emma admitted to some bad feelings, but turned the tables by saying it was she who had the strongest feelings against Abby. Lizzie's were actually more cordial toward, toward their stepmother than her own. Knowlton flipped them right back around by having Emma's earlier testimony read to her from Miss White's stenographic documents, where she said the relationship between Lizzie and Abby was not cordial. 
They volleyed back and forth on the issue until Emma weaseled out by saying she didn't remember saying that, and she felt the relationship between the two had been cordial for the past three years. Tension hung tight in the air. The two opponents squared off as if waiting for the next round, round bell to ring. Mr. Knowlton then tried to insert an ominous motive to explain Emma and Lizzie's exchanging rooms after Lizzie's return through Europe. He asked Emma if Lizzie had asked to take over the larger room, hinting that Lizzie's the man. Hinting at Lizzie's the man. Emma stated flatly it was her idea. End of story. The district attorney asked Emma about the guest room where Abby's body was found, and to its purpose. Excuse me for a second. As a sitting room for the sisters, Knowlton. And didn't you usually receive Miss Russell there, Emma? Very often. Knowlton. Didn't you usually receive Miss Anna Borden there, Emma? No, sir. She was never in that room in her life. There was a one o'clock recess taken until 2.15 p.m. The feeling in the room as the break was announced was aching, <laughs> was akin to the release of air from an overblown balloon. When the afternoon session began, Mr. Knowlton ran Emma through the house chores while Bridget was still there. It was determined the servant had no duties on the second floor. The girls took care of their own rooms as did Abby of hers. The guest room was clean depending on who used it. Lizzie was in charge of unlocking the three front door locks each morning. Mr. Knowlton asked Emma if she had caused any search to be made for the note that Abby supposedly received that morning. Emma answered, I think I only looked in a little bag that she, being Abby, carried down the street with her sometimes and in her work basket. She said she instigated the advertisement offering a reward for the writer or messenger of the note. None appeared. It ran for several days. Emma answered Mr. Knowlton's question about whether she knew there was a broken hatchet in the cellar by saying, not until you told me about it, at the grand jury. She testified that she, Lizzie, and Abby had waterproofs, being raincoats, and that she had taken hers with her to Fairhaven. Abby's usually hung in the clothes in a clothes press near the front door at the base of the stairs, and Lizzie's blue and brown plaid hung in the clothes press upstairs. Mr. Knowlton's next attempt was more forceful. He was after the truth concerning the quarrel between Emma and Lizzie reported by Matron Reagan. Emma's answers were not as forceful as those she gave Mr. Jennings, and they are evasive. Knowlton, do you remember any talk that passed between you and Lizzie? Emma, no, sir. Knowlton, nothing whatever? Emma, no, sir. Knowlton, how long did you, did you remain there? Emma, I think an hour and a half or two hours. Knowlton, and your attention was called very promptly to the circumstances that the morning's interview, was it not? Emma, it was called, it was called to me the next morning. Knowlton, and even then, could you recall anything that was said at all? Emma, I don't remember now whether I did or not. It was nothing but ordinary conversation, and I didn't remember it as I didn't tax my mind with it. Knowlton, and there was no sitting silent for any length of time that morning? Emma, I don't remember. I don't know. Knowlton, do you remember whether whether it did or not? Emma, I think not. Attorney Knowlton now pours salt on the wound when he goes over how close Alice Russell had been to the sisters. After several questions in that area, he turns, he turns to the night of the murder and receives some interesting answers from Emma. Knowlton, Miss Russell stayed with you three days after the, after the Thursday. Emma, yes, sir. Knowlton, night and day mostly? Emma, I think so. Knowlton, slept in the house Thursday night? Emma, yes, sir. Knowlton, was that at anybody's request? Emma, I don't remember. Knowlton, did she sleep in the house Friday night? Emma, yes, sir. Knowlton, 
Did she stay there Saturday night? Emma, I don't know. I think she did, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure? Saturday night was the night Alice switched rooms with Emma. How does she not remember that? Was she distancing herself from it? As it was due to as it was, excuse me, as it was due to an explosion by Lizzie after after the mayor accused Lizzie of the murders? Or for some other reason? It's certainly a very strange answer. Well, say Nolta is now entering hostile territory. He knows Emma has lied about seeing the Bedford cord in the clothes closet Saturday evening after the search is over. If she is not lying, then it means Lizzie has successfully hidden it for three days, despite, um, despite myriad searches of the house. There is no witness to Emma finding the dress in the closet Saturday night, so no one to verify Emma's statement. If he brings it up, he risks the jury wondering why the police didn't see it. Was it due to an incompetent search? What else did they miss? He is already dealing with the mess Mr. Fleet put, put them in with the hatchet head and the missing handle. Emma will only lie to him. He decides to go for the testimony that did have a witness, one willing to stand up before the grand jury and a private investigator to tell the truth. Knowlton. Do you recall what the first thing you said was when Miss Liddy was standing by the stove with the dress? Emma. You might as well, or why don't you? Something like that. That is what I meant. I can't tell the exact words. Knowlton. Wasn't the first thing you said by anybody was, Lizzie, what are you doing? What are you going to do with that dress? Emma, no, sir, I don't remember so. Knowlton, do you understand, Miss Russell, so to testify? Parentheses, his careful groundwork of showing Miss Russell to be a long-standing friend of the sisters will now pay off. This is a woman who would do nothing to hurt them, especially except to lie on the stand. In parentheses, Emma, I think she did. Knowlton, you remember whether that was so or not? Emma, it doesn't seem to me. I don't remember it so. Nolton, why doesn't it seem so to you, if I may ask? Emma, why? Because the first I know of it, my sister spoke to me. Nolton, sarcastically, that is what I thought you would say. Now, you don't recall that the first thing that you said to her, the first thing that was said by anybody was, what are you going to do with that dress, Lizzie? Emma, no, sir. I don't remember saying that. Knowlton, Miss Russell was in the room, was she not? Emma, I don't know. When I turned to hear what my sister had to say, I saw Miss Russell, but she wasn't in the room with, with her then. She was in the dining room with the door open. Knowlton, the reason you think you didn't say so was because you had previously spoken to her about destroying the dress? Emma, yes, sir. I had pre previously spoken about it. I don't think I had thought of the dress at the time. I had spoken to her about it. Knowlton, now isn't that the reason that you say you didn't say that argument? Emma, the reason that I say I didn't say so is because I didn't say so. Emma shot back. Knowlton, you swear you didn't say so. Emma, I swear I didn't say it. Knowlton, didn't you just tell me that you didn't remember saying it? Emma, I did. Knowlton, do you mean to put it any stronger than that? Emma, I think I may truthfully. Knowlton, what is refreshed? refreshed your, your recollection since. Emma, nothing, only thinking. I'm sure I didn't. Knowlton, did you see your sister burn the dress? Emma, I did not. Knowlton, did you see Miss Russell come back again the second time? Emma, I don't remember. I think she was wiping the dishes and came back and forth, and I didn't pay attention. Knowlton, did you hear Miss Russell say to her, I wouldn't let anybody see me do that? Emma, I did not. Knowlton, 
you mean that you don't remember it or that it was not said? Emma, I don't say it was not said. I say that I didn't hear it. Knowlton, and did you notice that for any reason your sister Lizzie took, took and stepped away after something was said by Miss Russell? Emma, I didn't see my sister at all after she left the stove. Parentheses, this was Mr. Knowlton's or anyone's first chance to ask about the dress burning incident, as it had been first heard of at the grand jury five months earlier. We do know if anyone questioned Emma after Alice came in in the final hour to make her announcement after the grand jury recess for Thanksgiving, Mr. Mr. Knowlton may have felt he came away with an empty sack, or perhaps the jury would recognize a sister desperately trying to save her younger sibling's life. End of parentheses. Mr. Jennings had two follow-up questions for Emma. The first was very odd and left hanging. Jennings, you remain in the kitchen yourself all the time washing dishes? Emma, I was. Jennings, and did you go to the stove? Emma, yes, sir. Jennings, did you know where the waterproof of Miss Lizzie's was on the day of the search? Emma, hanging in the clothes press that have spoken of so often. Hang on a second, what's going on here? Waterproof, okay. That's what I wanted to find out. Hang on. Give me a minute, I just got thrown off. Uh-oh. Okay. Bear with me. Alright, Emma. Hanging in the clothes press that had been spoken of so often. Jennings. Do you know where it is now? Emma, it is there now. Jennings. Been there ever since? Emma. Every day since. Parentheses. The first question set is very strange. Why did Jennings ask Emma if she went to the stove? Why are there no follow-up questions pertaining to it? Was Jennings worried someone had seen Emma go to the store or go to the stove? An officer, Alice, did Alice testify to the grand jury that she saw Emma go over to the stove, perhaps to see if the dress had burned? Was, was he worried Knowlton might, be, might bring it up on the recross? It would look less suspicious if Jennings <clears throat> put it out there first. Knowlton threw in the towel on this one and let it go. It is never heard of again, in parentheses. As as the, uh, my, just, I'm sorry. As the spinster made her way down from the stand that day, did Attorney Nolton look at her with grudging respect? She had taken all this bare of a man. Had, <laughs> okay, she had taken all this bare of a man had leveled at her, and not flinched. What was it with these born women? He may have thought that they could bear up so well in the face of adversity. Emma smiled at her sister and excited and exited the courtroom. Mrs. Mary Raymond was sworn to testify. Her story concerning the making of the Bedford Court dress in May 1892 had been included earlier in the day. She stated that she made two dresses for Lizzie during the sewing session, a blue Bedford Court dress with full sleeves and a narrow ruffle and a pink and white striped wrapper. The Bedford Court had gotten paint on it shortly after she made it. When Jennings tried to find out what the Bordens usually did with their old dresses, he was met with objections from Mr. Knowlton. He finally managed to get his question in by asking what Lizzie did with the old dress the Bedford Court replaced. Mrs. Raymond replied, she cut some pieces out of it and said she would burn the rest. Jennings, could she get that dress on under any of her other dresses? Raymond, no sir, her dresses were always made too snug for that, the waist and the sleeves both. Baby Bowen was next called. The wife of Dr. Seabury Bowen had only played a small part in the tragic aftermath that day, as her husband sent her home not long after she arrived. Her time on the stand, however, was long enough to do some damage. Knowlton, you noticed Lizzie's hands, you say? Phoebe, yes, sir. Knowlton, they looked white? Phoebe, they did. Knowlton, did you notice they were clean? 
Phoebe, yes. Norton, clean and white. Phoebe, clean and white. Norton, the whole of the hands. Phoebe, yes, sir. Norton, nothing on them at all? Phoebe, no, sir. Norton, did they present to you the appearance of having been out in the dusty barn? Phoebe, realizing the trap too late. I did not notice anything upon them. Norton, noticed nothing of that kind whatsoever. Phoebe, no, sir, I was not thinking of it. Norton, clean and white, were they? Phoebe, I think they were. Parentheses, while Jennings may have cringed, it would probably pale to how her husband would respond when he found out, as Dr. Bowen was one of the few people still trying to save Lizzie's life. End of parentheses. Mr. Norton managed to rattle Mrs. Bowen further when he reminded her of her preliminary hearing testimony, where she described the dress Lizzie wore that day as a blue waist, as a blouse waist of blue material with a white spray running right through, the, through it. Phoebe Bowen then changed by testifying the white spray as, oh, it was blue, a dark blue. When Knowlton shows her the dress, Lizzie turned in, and he asked, that would not be described by you in any way as a blouse waist, a blue material, with white spray running through it? Phoebe helplessly, that would not. Knowlton, were you an intimate friend of the family, Mrs. Bowen? Phoebe, yes, sir. Knowlton, and at that time, when you gave that testimony, you did not know that any question was made as to whether the right dress had been produced to the officers or not? Phoebe, I did not know anything about the dress. Mrs. Mary Brigham is recalled and asked a few more questions about the incident in the matron's room in respect to the quarrel. She testifies she went for the egg that after she, she went for the egg that afternoon for the trick, and that after, and that afterward, Edwin Porter came back to the quarter outside the room and beaconed Beacon, I'm sorry, beckoned to Mrs. Reagan. It's spelled Beacon. The matron went out into the hallway and upon returning said, That reporter has come after me again, and I told him that I had nothing to tell him. She stated this was the afternoon before the preliminary hearing began, and the story of the sisters' quarrel ran in the paper. Mrs. Brigham then said she and John Morse had done an experiment where Morse lay on the floor between the bed and the dressing bureau in the position where Abby's body lay. Mary stood on the stairs in the position that Bridget and Mrs. Churchill stood and claimed to see Abby's body on the bed. She said someone of her height could not see him from the hallway over the top of the bed, but you could, but once, but you could once you walked into the room a little ways. She also said they ran some experiments with the spring locks on the front door and found it didn't close properly and could be popped open if it hadn't been shut hard enough for the lock to catch. Mrs. Annie White, the stenographer, was recalled and asked to read back Bridget's inquest testimony answer when she was asked if Lizzie was crying that morning when Bridget hurried down the stairs after Lizzie yelled for her that father was been killed. Miss White read it back and Bridget said, yes sir, she was crying. Bridget denied saying that in all of her testimonies. With that, the defense rested. Articles of evidence offered in the case were requested for the government's short rebuttal. A 15-minute recess was called the government's rebuttal. Mr. Mooney recalled Rufus Hilliard, the Fall River Marshal. It was a very short testimony going over Marshal Hilliard's orders to Matron Reagan to not sign the paper drawn up by Mr. Jennings to refute her story running in the papers concerning the quarrel between the sisters. He testified there were many witnesses who overheard him. Next was Officer Michael Mullally, who was questioned by Mr. Moody about obtaining some information from Hyman Lubinsky, the ice cream peddler, on the 8th of August. Mullally said Mr. Lubinsky told him he passed the boards at 10.30 that morning and saw a lady coming from the area of the barn toward the side steps. Mr. Bulelli produced his book 
of reports where he wrote down the information at the time of the interview. He said he also reported those details to Mr. Fleet the same day. Miss Annie Wides called to the stand again and asked a few follow-up questions that had been stated before. Mr. Robinson, after consultation with Attorney Knowlton, stood and said, The evidence is closed on both sides. With that, the trial of the century was over. All that remained were the closing arguments and the change to the jury and, and the charge of the jury. The battle-weary attorneys picked up their satchels of papers and left the building. Closing argument for the defendant, June 19, 1893. Governor George Robinson stood and addressed the jury. He wasted no time in imprinting upon them unnecessarily after the myriad crime photos and bloody detail of the trial that this was a very gory murder. He went over the number of blows to each head, the crushing of the skulls, and the penetration of the brains. Quote, the terrors of those scenes, no language to portray, he said, with gut feeling. And so, we are challenged at once, at the outset, to find somebody that is equal to that enormity, whose heart is blackened with depravity, whose whole life is a tissue of crime, whose past is a prophecy of that present. A maniac or friend, we say, not a man in his senses, and with his heart right, but one whose abnormal productions deity creates or suffers, a lunatic or a devil. So do we measure up the degree, degree of character or want of it that could possibly prompt a human being to do such acts? Lizzie shuddered and wept. The description would have touched all but the blackest of hearts. This was her attorney describing a monster that God himself would abhor. It was a reality too close to home. Mr. Robinson then fired a volley at the police department of Fall River, for their, for their ineptness. Quote, Policemen are human, made out of men, and nothing else. And the blue coat and the brass buttons only cover the kind of man that is inside. And you do not get the greatest ability in the world inside a policeman's coat. You may perhaps get what you want and what is sufficient, but you must only call upon him for such service as he can render. Robinson went on a popular rush to justice mantra, stating that the police, stating the police was hounding the Police was hounding, or the public, I'm sorry, saying the public was hounding the police for a murder. Quote, look here, Mr. City Marshal, these murders were committed yesterday. Haven't you, haven't you the murderer in the lockup? Get somebody in, Robinson intoned. And so, they chose the youngest daughter who was home at the time. The jury was given charge of Lizzie's fate. Mr. Robinson told the twelve men, there she stands, protected, watched over, kept in charge by the judges of this court, and by the jury who have her in charge. Mr. Robinson spotlighted again a case built on circumstantial evidence, not direct evidence. There were no eyewitnesses to these murders, no dripping bloody hatchet, no blood upon the suspect. He then hit his strongest point in the mind of the defense, and I shall expect the learned district attorney to withdraw the things that Brother, that, that brother Moody said he was going to prove, because he has not proved them. Mr. Moody said the government was going to claim and prove that this defendant was preparing a dangerous weapon on August 3rd, the day before the murders. You heard him say that. I did. He said it. They have not proved it, have they? Was there a thing about it in the evidence? Parentheses. This was a low blow. The evidence to be proven through the testimony of two druggists who stated Lizzie Borden came to their stores the day before the murders to buy prussic acid never made it to the stand. The reason the jury never heard it was because it was excluded while they were out of the courtroom. In parentheses. 
Governor Robinson then goes after the murder weapon. The handle is hatchet. For the handle is in the box and is out of it. Fleet didn't see and Molly didn't see it. Fleet didn't take it out of the box and Molly saw him do it. And it is in the box now. And they run over to Fall River to get it, or they wanted to, and can't get into the house and explain about it. So we rather think that the handle is still flying in the air, a poor orphan handle without a hatchet, flying around somewhere. For heaven's sake, get the 125 police from the Fall River and chase it till they drive, till they drive, <laughs> I'm sorry, till they drive it somewhere and hitch it up to its family belongings. A courtroom grin at the Lizzie. The location of Lizzie and Abby's body that morning was gone into. Robinson pointed out that someone standing on the landing would not be able to see over the bed of the guest room and view Abby's prone body. He reminded the jury that they all had gone to the house and stood in the same place and that a person could leave Miss Lizzie's room and pass down the stairs and not have seen Abby lying there unless she turned her head at the turn of the stairs to deliberately look beneath the bed. He even had a reason for the tight board shutters and the guest room being partially closed that morning. The New England housewife does not like her carpet to fade. They don't let the light in. Mr. Robinson tries to sell the story to the jury that both Bridget and Lizzie were told by Abby that she received a note from a sick friend and went out, even though Bridget stated flatly she did not receive the information from Mrs. Porton, but rather from Lizzie. He rereads Mrs. Churchill's testimony to the jury, omitting the fact that Bridget told her about the note voluntarily after calling her inexplicably into the kitchen where Lizzie sat. He also stated that it was Miss Russell, not Lizzie, who suggested Abby must have dropped the note in the fire after reading it. Lizzie's story of being in the barn has gone over and said to be perfectly a perfectly natural thing for her to do while she waited for her irons to heat. She ate some pears beneath the shade of a tree for ten minutes, and then went into the barn. She, she happily has a witness this time, an ice cream peddler sees her. Robinson then attacks Officer Moley's timeline of the peddler, discrediting him as the knight of the handle. Lizzie's testimony of hearing a scraping noise and a groan are tossed away as the excitement of the moment. Such noises are a common occurrence. It is not a serious matter. Lizzie, hearing Abby come back before her father came back, and sending people to go upstairs in the front room to look for her is natural. Parentheses, he forgets that when Andrew comes in, Lizzie tells him Abby had a note from a sick friend and went out, not that she may have come back. Because I think I heard her come in. And in parentheses. Mr. Robinson then attacks the theory that just because Lizzie stopped calling Abby mother some five years ago is nothing. Lizzie is now a 32-year-old woman. Mrs. Borden was her stepmother. She is not my mother. She is not my stepmother, is a natural thing to say. I suspect that never a man lets, lets into the inner chamber of his heart the feeling that anybody else in the world can stand where his own mother did. He then reminds the jury that Bridget said she never heard a word of complaint between the two women. He tells of the dressmaking parties the two sisters had with their stepmother in the guest room. He takes a shot at Officer Harrington, which causes the courtroom to erupt in laughter. Philip Harrington ought to have been there and had the whole style developed to him to learn more than he knows if it is possible to put anything in his head on the subject. The jurors' heartstrings were once again plucked when Mr. Robinson said that Andrew Borden was an old-fashioned man, lived in a simple way, did not care anything about the frivolities of life, had worked himself up to what would be called a fortune, had taken care of it, was then superintending its use and income, 
and for all of that on his little finger was that ring which belonged to the little girl. The indelicate position, the pale of bloody cloths placed in Lizzie's suspicion was gone into briefly in an attempt to play down her second visit to the cellar that night without Alice Russell. Taking again her own sickness at that time, the fact that the pail was standing right by the sink, I am not going to make any suggestions, but I am quite certain that you will guess what she was there for. I'll leave it there. Parentheses. He has omitted that his co-counsel said Lizzie's sickness, menstrual cycle, ended Wednesday night, and her trip to the cellar was Thursday night, the evening of the murders. End parentheses. Mr. Robinson then tried to defuse the number of witnesses who said Lizzie was wearing a light blue dress that morning, not the dark-colored dress that has been turned over to police. Now, there is a difference in recollection, just as good people on one side saying, saying it was dark blue as those on the other side who say it was light blue. But you will remember that at that time there were several ladies in there, and Bridget was there with a lighter-colored dress, so that those who speak of the lighter-colored dress may have in mind what Bridget had on. Parentheses. Bridget had on a dark blue dress, in parentheses. The next shot taken to the government's case was the assertion that Lizzie was alone in the house with Abby and alone with Andrew once Bridget went upstairs. Robinson points out the screen door was unlatched while Bridget was out washing windows. He points out how Bridget was talking with the Kelly girl for a while out of view of the side door. Lizzie was inside doing ordinary work, going up and down stairs, going to the water closet in the cellar. He then goes on, it into an elaborate, great hypothetical of how an assailant came in and where he could have hidden. Officer Midley's finding that no one had walked out on the barn loft floor that morning had to be taken apart. Robinson mentioned the half dozen witnesses who had testified to being up at the loft before Midley arrived, perhaps hoping the jurors would forget that all their statements had been discredited. Governor Robinson wrapped up with, It is enough. As I have said, if the government fails to prove the charge, and your duty is to find her not guilty. There is reasonable doubt, and you must think, I cannot go to the length of a verdict guilty on this evidence. As to Lizzie's lack of tears, he quoted from a song, The eyes that cannot weep are the saddest eyes of all. Take care of her as you have, and give us promptly your verdict of not guilty, that she may go home and be Lizzie Andrew Borden of Fall River in that blood-stained and wrecked home where she passed her life so many years. Judge Mason allowed the jury to retire for a brief recess before Mr. Knowlton's arguments began. Let me grab a quick swallow of water, and we're going to continue because since we're at the end of the trial, we might as well finish off today. So, give me a minute here. Give me some water. I'm really dry. All right, one more sip. So we're going to go to the arguments of the, for the prosecution here. Really good book, very detailed. All right. So if you guys don't mind, we might as well wrap up the trial. Okay, so that's where I'm continuing to. We're just going to go on today. Wrap up this trial. And, um, okay. And see what happens. Is she guilty or not guilty? And then I want to hear from you guys. You know, after the, after after I get the trial wrapped up, I want to hear what you guys think. Did she do it? Did she not do it? In your opinion? Okay. So let's continue. Jose Knowlton, the reluctant district attorney, stood before the jury with mixed feelings in his heart. His calling by the government to present a case guaranteed to procure a verdict of guilty was his was his mantle. Yet, the outcry of public against him, 
that he would endeavor to put an innocent, well-bred Christian woman behind bars and then tie the noose that would hang her, rang in his ears from morning until night. Her blood would forever be on his hands, just as it had been on the murder of Andrew and Abby Borden. He also opened by speaking of the atrocity of the crime in this heart-trending case, which lacerates the heart the heartstrings of the human of humanity. Mr. Knowlton went on to say, My distinguished friend says, Who could have done it? The answer would have been, Nobody could have done it. If you have read the account of these cold and heartless facts in any tale of fiction before this thing had happened, would you not have said, Mr. Foreman, that will do for a story, but such things never happen. It was, a, it was an impossible crime, but it was committed. The prisoner at the bar is a woman, and a Christian woman, as the expression is used. It is no ordinary criminal that we are trying today. It is one of the ranks it is one of the ranks of the lady, the equal of your wife and mine, of your friend and mine, of whom such things had never been suspected or dreamed before. I hope I may never forget, nor in anything that I say here today, lose sight of the terrible significance of that fact. We are trying a crime that would have been deemed impossible, but for the fact that it was, and are charging with the commission of it a woman whom we would have believed incapable of doing it, but for the evidence that it is my duty, my painful duty to call to your attention. But I beg you to observe, Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, that you cannot dispose of the case upon the consideration. Alas, that is so. But no station in life is a pledge or security against the commission of crime, and we all know it. Those who are entrusted with the most precious savings of, of the window in orphan who stand in the community as towers of strength and fidelity suddenly fall, and the wreck involves the ruin of many happy homes. Parentheses. Mr. Knowlton hit the very nerve of this case. He knew instinctively that these twelve men, hearing the case, were all husbands and fathers. They had seen evidence of gore and brutality beyond measure, and in each photograph or bloody piece of carpeting and clothing, Knowlton knew they were measuring it against the woman in their own lives. Could my wife or daughter be capable of this? He addressed it masterfully. In parentheses. Attorney Knowlton attacked the punch Mr. Robinson had leveled at the Fall River Police Department. A blue coat does not make a man any better. It ought to not make him any worse. They are men. Mr. Fleet is a man. Mr. Molly is a man. Mr. Midley is a man. And they are not to be stood up in a row and characterized as good or bad, because they are officers but upon what you think of them as men. There is no presumption that any class of people do not tell the truth. As to the government's case being built upon circumstantial evidence, Mr. Knowlton said, I have heard many an honest man say that he cannot believe circumstantial evidence. But, gentlemen, the crime we are trying is a crime of an assassin. It is the work of one who does his foul deeds beyond the sight and hearing a man. Direct evidence is the evidence of a man who sees and hears circumstantial evidence as all other kinds. Murder is the work of stealth and craft in which there are not only no witnesses, but the traces are attempted to be obliterated, and yet murder must be punished. Attorney Knowlton then laid out the proof he believed his case had provided Mr. Lucas guilt. 1. Abby came to her death by a period of an hour and a half before her husband. Andrew Jackson Borden probably never heard the clock strike eleven, as it peeled forth from the tower of the city hall. 2. The obstacles an intruder would have surpassed to commit the two murders 
while hiding for an hour and a half in that house of locks and go undetected by Lizzie, Bridget, and the busy street of people outside. 3. Abby Borden had not an enemy in the world. 4. There was a skeleton in the closet, with grinning eyeballs and the and dangling limbs. It is useless to tell you there was peace and harmony in that family. Others had spoken of Lizzie's hatred toward her stepmother. 5. No thief did this thing. There was no object to plunder. There was nothing in those blows but hatred. A great strong man would have taken the blow of that hatchet and made an end of it. Yet here we see some struck at an angle badly aimed, some struck here in the neck, badly directed, some pattered on the top of the head and didn't go through. Abby, six, Abby was struck from the front and fell on the floor. The sound of her body hitting the floor would have been heard throughout the house, yet Lizzie heard nothing. Seven, Bridget was obviously telling the story of the note as Lizzie told her to tell it to Mrs. Churchill. Eight, Mr. Knowlton takes an unusual stand. There may be that in this case, which saves us from the idea that Lizzie Andrew Borden planned to kill her father. I hope she did not. I should be slow to believe she did. But Lizzie Andrew Borden, the daughter of Andrew Jackson Borden, never came down to those stairs. It was not Lizzie Andrew Borden, the daughter of Andrew. She came down those stairs, but a murderess, a murderess, transformed from all the 32 years of an honest life, transformed from the daughter, transformed from the daughters of affection, to the most consummate criminal we've read of in all our history or works of fiction. Parentheses. He practically offers up an insanity defense for Lizzie, but he has hit the heart of it. This woman who murdered her father has changed. The killing of another human being only an hour and a half earlier has changed her. End of parentheses. Nine. Lizzie had no duties around the house, so Emma tells us there was nothing for her to do. Ten. Officer Harrington reported seeing a small fire on the stove at noon. There was heat enough to warm a small hand iron to iron nine or ten handkerchiefs. There was no need to leave the house to wait for them to heat. When Bridget went upstairs, she had already ironed most of them. Miss Russell said about three of them were still sprinkled and had not been done. So why stop ironing the minute Bridget went upstairs? What for, gentlemen? 11. Lizzie's heated remark to Mr. Fleet that she is not my mother. She is my stepmother, even though the woman who had raised her from the age of two lay only a few feet away, dead in the next room. 12. Lizzie said she assisted her father to lay down and helped him remove his shoes and put on his slippers when he was found with his street shoes on. 13. That Lizzie Borden went into that stifling hot barn for 20 to 30 minutes is simply absurd. I assert that story is not within the bounds of reasonable possibilities. She went out of the house and up in that barn to the hottest place in Fall River and there remained during the entire time that was covered by the absence of Bridget upstairs. It was necessary that she should be in the loft. It was, only, it was the only place where she could put herself and not have known what took place. 14. Show us the screen that needed fixing, as she told Miss Russell for her visit to the barn for the iron. Show us the fish lines that, that those sinkers went on. It was easy to do if they were in existence, if there was any truth to the story. 15. Hyman Lubinsky saw Lizzie coming from the backyard at 10.30. It was entered into a report the minute he stated it. He told the reporter, I presume it was published. Later, he tells his story to Mr. Phillips in Mr. Jennings' office, and the time of his passing at the boarding house has now changed to a little after 11. 16. Charles Sawyer, a big burly man, was so nervous about the butchery of those people that he locked the cellar door inside the kitchen entry 
had waited outside the door. Yet, Lizzie, after just discovering her father half to death, blood pouring, and having just seen him less than 30 minutes earlier, remained in the house and sent away the two women who were there to help her. There was no fear of a murderer remaining in the house. She knew who the murderer was, and she was in no danger. 17. Lizzie had ample time to clean up after Abby's murder. While Knowlton, Knowlton cannot account for how she managed to have no blood on her after Andrew's death, he does make the ominous statement. Perhaps one of the pregnant facts in this case is that when the officers had, com had completed their search and in good faith had asked her to produce the dress she was wearing that morning, they were fooled with that garment which lies in that truck, which was not upon her when any human saw her. Knowlton then reads Mrs. Churchill's statement of the dress she saw Lizzie wearing that morning when they were alone, and Mrs. Churchill was the first to arrive. It looked like a light blue and white groundwork. It seemed like calico or cambric, and it had a light blue and white groundwork with dark navy blue diamond printed on it. Showing Mrs. Churchill the dress Lizzie turned in, was this the dress she had on that morning? It does not look like it, Mrs. Churchill said. 18. The paint-stained Bedford court is not anywhere in the house. Saturday, when the police undertake two searches. It was definitely not in the clothes press with the other dresses. Where was it? The fact that Emma says she saw it there and suggests that Lizzie Burnett falls within the perimeters of a sister's love and trying to save her life. And she burns the dress the morning after the mayor tells her she's suspected of murder. 19. The handleless hatchet shows signs that someone adhered white ashes to it on both sides to make it appear dusty and ill-used. The ashes, according to Professor Wood, look as though they were wiped on a wet blade forced in the crevices. The hatchet head is found in the board and cellar. It fits the wounds perfectly. In fact, it would be doubtful any other blade could have fit the wounds due to its singular grinding. An intruder would have carried the weapon away, not spent all that time on disguising the instrument of murder. 20. Mrs. Reagan's story of the sister's quarrel was told under oath. She was seen speaking to the reporter shortly before the story ran in the newspapers, and she was reluctant to sign the paper Mr. Jennings drew up asking her to perjure herself. It was waved away as self-evident. She did, <clears throat> excuse me, she did overhear the argument of Lizzie accusing her sister of giving, away, giving her away. Attorney Knowlton, with a great inner sigh of relief, rested his case and lifted the albatross from his neck. It was in the hands of the jury. He had done all he could. The charge of the jury. Judge Dewey, the man Governor Robinson had put on the bench gave one of the most unique and biased charges ever given to a jury. Many stated his charge was better than the defense's entire case in the realm of freeing Lizzie Borden from the hangman's noose. Instead of merely admonishing the jurors to look over all the evidence and come to a fair finding, the lengthy charge tells some, some of the following statements. <clears throat> Judge Dewey, one, Judge Dewey gives an overview of Lizzie's past character and habits. He then says, in other cases, it may raise a reasonable doubt of a defendant's guilt even in the face of strongly incriminating circumstances. 2. As for Lizzie's hatred of Abby and the things she had spoken of her to others, he said, imputing a motive to the defendant does not prove that she had it. What, according to common observation, is the habit of young women in their use of language? Is it not rather the use of intense expression? Whether or not they do not use words which, strictly taken, excuse me, Go far beyond their real meaning? 3. As for the note taken from the sick friend, Judge Dewey practically handed the jurors proof of the intruder theory on a platter. Contemplate the possibility of there being another assassin than herself. 
might it not be part of the plan or scheme of such a person by such document or paper to withdraw Mrs. Borden from the house? After killing her, might he not have reasonable and natural wish to remove that note as one possible link in tracing himself? 4. He dismissed Lizzie's contradictory statements alluded to her from her inquest testimony as to be received with great caution. Repetition of oral statements is subject to much imperfection and mistake. 5. The most astonishing blow was dealt to the learned man of Harvard who had testified as witnesses. Judge Dewey said, Now, the government has called as witnesses some gentlemen of scientific and medical knowledge and experience who are termed experts. They sometimes manifest a strong bias or partisan spirit in favor of the party employing them. 6. As to Lizzie's not taking the stand on her own behalf, he defended her decision by saying, She is exposed to the peculiar danger of having her contact on the stand and her testimony severely scrutinized and perhaps misjudged. 7. Judge Dewey's final salute to Lizzie was asking the gentlemen of the jury if they can extract from the testimony such a description of a dress as, was in it, as, as would enable you from testimony to identify the dress. Judge Dewey then excused the jury to go on and deliberate their findings and read a verdict. The charge was so incredible that Joseph Howard took his pen to it on Wednesday morning, June 21st, 1893. Judges plead for the innocent. The judge's charge was remarkable. It was a place for the innocent. It was a plea for the innocent. He had been the senior counsel for the defense making, excuse me a second, okay, for the defense making the closing plea on behalf of the defendant. He could not have more absolutely pointed out the following. Did I say, hang on, did I read that wrong? Okay, I'm sorry. Let me reread that. My bad. The judge's charge was remarkable. It was a plea for the innocent. Had he been the senior counsel for the defense, making the closing plea on behalf of the defendant, he could not have more absolutely pointed out the folly of depending upon the circumstantial evidence alone. With, with matchless clearness, he set up the case of the prosecution point by point and, in the most in, ingenious manner possible, knocked it down. And like the saints, he continued to the end, throwing bombs of disheartenment into the range of the prosecution and causing smiles of great joy on the lips of Lizzie's friends. I doubt there was such a charge before. There never was a prosecution so heavily capped before. The jury made their decision on the first ballot. Out of respect for the prosecution, they delayed ringing the bell that would signal they were ready to publish their verdict. For an hour and a half they talked. The exhibits had not been touched. The two fleshless faces of Andrew and Abby Borden sat among the pieces of bloody carpet, axes, and hatchets, silent in their waiting for the announcement concerning their daughter. Will the jury believe Lizzie Borden capable of murder? At 4.30 in the afternoon of June 21, 1893, the bell rang, and the twelve men were led to the jury box. Thousands crowded the sidewalks outside. The tension inside the small courtroom was reaching the boiling point, and for once, it had nothing to do with the June heat. The three judges took their seats while all eyes scanned the faces of the twelve bewhiskered jurors in hopes of assigning their findings. Chief Justice Mason blurted, Have the jurors have the jurors rise as their names are called, Mr. Clerk. Mr. Jurors rise <laughs> as their names are called, Mr. Clerk. The court crier called each juror by name from his high perch. Simeon Borden, a cousin of Lizzie, stated officially, Lizzie Borden, stand up. Lizzie rose the nibbling of her lips giving away her anxiety. She was adorned with a large white-brimmed hat, pushed toward the front of her forehead, and festooned with large feather. Gentlemen of the jury, Clerk Borden said, have you agreed upon a verdict? We have, the former Richard's intoned. 
What say you, Mr. Foreman? Foreman Richard cut him off, no longer able to hold it in. Not guilty, he shouted. The courtroom erupted in thunderous applause and great shouts of joy. It passed through the open windows and out to the street where New Bedford took up the cry. There was a scene of exultation such as the city had never seen. Sheriff Wright gave up maintaining order in the courtroom and sat back in his chair, resigned to the chaos. His eyes rimmed with tears, happy to see the young woman who had played with his daughter as a child and who had been his ward at the Taunton jail for ten months set free. Lizzie collapsed against the railing, flanking her chair. She leaned upon it and hid her face in her arms as she sobbed. Emma reached for her. Take me home, Lizzie sobbed. Take me home. I want to go to the old place tonight. Mr. Jennings, overcome with emotion, turned to Mr. Melvin O. Adams, his co-counsel, took his hand and said, Thank God. Lizzie was led out of the room where men and women alike were waving handkerchiefs and cheering. She was taken to the judge's chamber where she took some time to regain her composure. After an hour, a carriage arrived to take her and her sister to the New Bedford station. As usual, a crowd surrounded her, while Emma tried valiantly to push through the people pressing against her sister. They managed finally to board the train that would carry them back to Fall River, a place Lizzie was sure would embrace her now. Mrs. Susan S. Fenston, whose voice had been heard so often during the trial, captured Lizzie's future in one succinct sentence. Some people will hold aloof from her as tainted. Some will lionize her as though it were some triumph to have suffered long and bitterly at the hands of the state. Lizzie herself, in a letter to a friend, said prophetically, Of course, my life will never be the same. The jurors from the trial had been through much, and during that time they had formed a bond and decided to have a yearly party to keep in touch with one another. In July 1893, juror Augustus Swift took a 30 by 20 inch photograph of the 12 jurors who had decided Lizzie's faith to her home in Fall River, and presented it to her. Captain William Lewis was with him. Lizzie was touched, and it was said she and Emma placed the portrait in their parlor. Lizzie wrote to one of the jurors, Frederick C. Wilbur, and thanked him and the others for the portrait, calling them her faithful friends and deliverers. All right, we're going to stop there, okay? Next chapter, or next section, is Home Sweet Home. So we went a half hour later than we should, than I usually do. But I kind of figure with you guys, you know, we come this far and coming to the closing arguments and all that, if I stop there, you guys would be like, you know, disappointed that we didn't go on and finish off the trial. So we did. So that's it for this week. We will continue next week. And we'll see that Lizzie's now out of jail. She's living back in her uh, stepmother's and father's house. And her life goes on from there. And then we can see what, what happened, you know, after the trial and the after effects. And if maybe she had second thoughts about if she actually did or not, right? I want to thank you guys for coming. Again, if you're watching from Facebook, please excuse me, please hit that follow button. If you're watching from Twitch, please hit the follow button. If you're watching from Oh my gosh, if you're watching from YouTube, please click that little ghost down in the bottom right hand corner with the Sherlock Holmes hat on and the magnifying glass. Uh, that will subscribe you to our YouTube channel. And if you're and uh, just I want to thank you guys for coming tonight. Uh, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five people. Equal opportunity, right? And you see that thing flashing at the bottom. That's because California Haunts, Radio and California Haunts, don't take any money to do uh, investigations. So everything you see here, whether it's computer, mic, uh, headphones, you know, uh, internet fees, uh, you know, service fees for StreamYard, all comes out of my pocket. And I can, I can kind of use some help, you know, even equipment for the paranormal team. And I can use some help to keep everything going. You know, I want to, I want to keep really good guests coming to the show. And uh, one of the ways to do it is just keep, keep us on the air, right? 
So if you could help me out a little bit, that would be great. That could be at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or you could do it at Venmo and then just type in California Haunts. But um, I really appreciate you guys coming. And a reminder, of tomorrow the show will be at 11 a.m. Pacific time. And we're going to have Bart, C- Bart C- Sebrell on. And he's going to be talking about the moon landing. And he has belief that the moon landing never happened. And so he's got all kinds of stuff to show us to prove that. So we'll be talking with him tomorrow. Anyway, I want to thank you guys again. Excuse me, let me sit up here. I sink in my chair. I want to thank you guys again for coming tonight. And I will see you all tomorrow. So, now that said, I'm in the wrong thing. Have a good night.